Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And today we speak with comedian W. Kamau Bell. As an African-American comedian, he is tackling issues like racial justice and all sorts of other really intense things. He has a new show on CNN, which is usually considered to be a pretty newsy network. Eh. (laughs) It's called United Shades of America. Let's take a listen to some of it. My name is W. Kamau Bell. As a comedian, I've made a living finding humor in the parts of America I don't understand. And now, I'm challenging myself to dig deeper. I'm on a mission to reach out and experience all the cultures and beliefs that add color to this crazy country. This is the United Shades of America. So on this show, Kamau is talking to all sorts of people. He talks to preppers, you know, those like Appalachian survivalists. Oh, the ones with lots and lots of canned foods. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Like Alaskans, essentially, is what he's talking about. (laughs) Or hipsters from Portland, where he talks about gentrification. Or he also, in fact, talks to these guys. The first thing that any man or woman learns when they join a clan group is how to wrap the cross. So when you burn a cross, you don't burn it to nothing. No, you don't burn it. It's called a cross It's a cross lighting. lighting. So this, how often do you do this, you said? You wouldn't want to do them every month. It makes it less special. It's like the idea, you could have champagne, but you're not going to have it every day. One of the nicest times to do it is when a, during a full moon. Yeah. Or in the winter when the, when the stars are, you know, twinkle. That sounds kind of like a clan postcard. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, if I was going to send out postcards at Christmas, I would want something like that for the... Uh, well, if you do that, Jim, you don't have to give me credit for the idea. I feel like this is not the right time to say that champagne can totally be drank every day. I think you disagree with this person, <laughs> and I disagree with this person that Kamau is talking to pretty much on everything, it sounds well, like. Well, and I mean, here's Kamau, who absolutely disagrees with this person, right? I mean, the Klan is literally a white supremacy group. And here's Kamau Bell, and he is a black man, and he's having uncomfortable dialogue with these folks. And they're all able to kind of laugh about it, which is this really interesting but still kind of uncomfortable thing that's happening. And he's done this in other formats before the CNN show, right? So I remember him from his stand-up where he does not pull punches mm-hmm. and from the show Totally Biased, which was produced by Chris Rock and tried to sort of be another Daily Show style political commentary show, but only lasted about a year. I talked with Kamau about that and other elements of his career. And it turns out he's like super obsessed with Denzel Washington. So we had lots to discuss. So without further ado, here I am skillfully launching into my interview with W. Kamau Bell. I thought we could start by talking about United Shades of America. Why did you decide to do this project? Are we doing it? Is it Yeah, let's do it. This is it. Is that cool? (laughs) That's cool. You segued right in. I like that. I mean, you know, I try. Good. Uh, So I had a show called Totally Biased that ran for about a little over a year. 
And then it was canceled, and I thought my career was over, and I was sad and depressed, uh-huh. and I had a daughter and a wife, and the apartment that was too expensive. And then slowly, I started to get inquiries. My agent told me that people wanted to meet with me, so I did this whole round of meetings around town in L.A. and New York. And most of the ones that made any sense were with news organizations or news platforms. Yeah, that's really interesting to yeah. me. Why, why do you think that is? I think the one thing that Totally Bias did for me, other than be my biggest career failure publicly, uh, was that it established <laughs> me as somebody who cares about the world, wears his heart on his sleeve, and can find humor in places that people don't normally think humor exists, and has a sort of a sense of what's going on in the world. So news, everybody wants comedy in their thing, but a lot of news organizations have tried to throw any comedian in there, and it usually doesn't work out, because comedians rightfully so, don't feel like they should have an allegiance to anybody, so they'll say whatever they want to say. So for me, I also feel like I should never have allegiance to anybody, but the things I say generally can exist in a space like that. But So when I went to CNN, I went to all these new organizations, they were just like, we can have you do anything. But CNN had been pitched a project that at that point was called Black Men, White America. And at that point, it was a black comedian traveling America to white places. Hmm. And I was like, that's great. Is, is this filmed in the 1960s? <laughs> <laughs> I just was like, I feel like I've been more places than white places in this country, and I live in the Bay Area where yeah. the, I, I feel like everybody in the Bay Area would be like, why are you just going to white places? Yeah. And so <laughs> when across from your house is a mosque, why don't you go across the street to the mosque? Uh, not that white people can't be Muslims, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was originally going to be called Black Man, White America. I know, which and sounds you like an MTV them, special from the 90s. Yeah, I mean, it is really fascinating to think about just like the dichotomy of that term and yeah. then what you ended up with, which is United Shades, Shades of America, of which is a lot more positive in terms of like, hey, we're all in yeah, this together. Yeah, it sounds a lot less like this week we see if Kamal gets killed. Or oh this week. And, and luckily, I mean, I'll give credit to the producer, Jimmy Fox, who's his idea. When he heard the feedback from CNN, he was like, he thought that was a better idea. And he was like, yeah. And then they changed the name to United Shades of America, which, like, I was like, that's so way better. I'll wear that t shirt. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, totally. I'll watch yeah. that show. I'll watch that show. You know? I, t shirts are my how I judge things. Will I wear okay. that t shirt? Yeah, uh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> that's how I, all, everything <laughs> in life is based on would I wear that t shirt. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so they changed the name and then it was like, what are we going to do for the first episode? And, I was always like, why don't we go see the Klan? Why don't we go see yeah, the Klan? Yeah, man. So what's with your fascination with the Klan? It's the same way that, like, Prey always has a fascination with the Predator. <laughs> like, it's like you sort of need to know, the gazelle needs to know, is the, is the lion around? So this <laughs> like, is a survival thing. It's a survival thing. It's, I've, huh. And also, also a curiosity thing. Like, the Klan's rites and rituals are cuckoo time. You know what I mean? Like, just the pointy hats and the robes and the and they do a thing where everything starts with a K. I just always thought it'd be cool to sort of go and talk to these people. But I never was going to go by myself because I'm not crazy. Sure. So I was just always like, if we're talking about United Shades of America, like the whole idea is places where that are outside of my comfort zone. I was mm-hmm. like, the Klan is way outside of my comfort zone. And I also knew we had to make a pilot that was very different from anything else on CNN because they already had Bourdain and Lisa Ling and Warren Spurlock and Mike Rowe. And uh, John Walsh, who's like hunting people down. I'm not hunting people down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hunt the cl- I hunted the clan down, but I didn't bring them into justice. I just I just hunted them down and talked to them. You've talked about how you think dialogue is really important when it comes to you know, especially if you look at the state of the nation right now and how yes. divisive everything is. Yeah. The only way we're going to get through some of these issues is if we have constructive conversations that often also involve comedy. To what extent do you think that worked with the KKK folks that you talked to? 
did anybody change your mind in there? Were you like, you know, these are good guys? No, I think sometimes awkward conversation doesn't mean that people change their minds. It just means that people leave room for each other's humanity. Like, mm. you may not think that gay people should get married, and I may think they should be able to get married. But if we have a conversation about it, you may walk away going, I guess it's really none of my business. I'll just, I just won't ever get gay married. You know, like, I mean, you know, so it's come <laughs> off their worry list. Like, I walked out of there. So there's two different conversations. There's a conversation I'm having in the show, and then there's a conversation that I'm trying to encourage people to have off the show. Right, right. And so I do know that when I left, that at least one of those guys, the guy who I, I talked to the most at the cross burning, he walked out. I feel like I know he walked home that night going, I really like that black dude. Because we had a fun conversation while he was dressed in the Klan robe. And we had the, he was the guy who was like, it's hot under here. I was like, I bet it is. <laughs> like, you know, like, we had this sort of uh, a back and forth conversation. And then I know people at home. It's a thing. The show, at its best, encourages people to sort of want to talk to other people about what they're watching. Yeah. And that's mission accomplished, as George W. Bush would say. So do you think the Klan is off your worry list? Off my worry list? Yeah. They were never really on my worry list. Okay. You okay. Know, I'm way more worried about President Trump than I am the KKK. Okay. Uh, I live that's in fair. Berkeley. Uh, they're, you know, they're, if they were to try to come get me, they would have to go through so much to get to Berkeley that it would. I would. I there would be so many people who would stop them, not even worried about me before they got to Berkeley. I'm not really worried about it. I don't plan on moving to the places. I'm not, I mean, Harrison, Arkansas was a lovely place. I don't plan on moving there anytime mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. But you started something, which is cool. Yes. I, I mean, I, the thing I really appreciate with the show is that people – understand what we were going for. I don't mean we accomplish it every time, but they get like, I feel like I always want to make stuff that is not things I see in the world already. Mm -hmm. Like just sort of like, you know, so that's why I want to do the clan. I'm just, it doesn't mean it's good, but I'm like, I've never seen this and I would like to see this. So it doesn't mean it's going to be successful. I have a podcast that's all about Denzel Washington. I know. Dozens of people. (laughs) Uh, But it's really fun to do with me and my my friend Kevin Avery. So, uh, but yeah, so it's like I just like to make things that I that I feel like I don't see. So I'm interested also in your backstory. I know you spent some time in Chicago, not only in high school, but then at Second City. Yeah, let's be clear. I paid to be at Second City. I was never oh, paid okay. to be at okay. Second City. Yeah, Fair enough. <laughs> so you that can cut this part out if you need to. It is an important distinction. Um, I still owe them $180. You owe them $180? Yeah. Are you ever going to pay them back? No. You're over it? Do they like send you letters and stuff? No, they. I felt like they were sort of like you're never going to make much out of improv, so we're not going to chase you down for that money. So this I is a like. debt that you're kind of holding on. To. I'm hold, I bring. I don't think they would know, but I remember not paying for the last <laughs> the last segment of classes. One thing I think is really interesting about Second City is I feel like in a lot of ways it's sort of like learning how to do comedy for a white audience. Oh yes. Do you think? You learned that my whole, there? Co- my whole Chicago experience was learning how to do comedy for a white audience. You think so? Because I didn't play the black rooms because I was living on the north side. And also, I'd been around a lot of white people. How I carried myself on stage sort of made more sense in a white room than it did in a black room. Now, at the time, I felt pretty torn up about that. Because like, black comedy, there's a, is, there's a rhythm and a feel to it. And uh-huh. I say black comedy, I mean the thing we call black comedy. I'm a black comedian, so technically I'm a part of black comedy. But back then, we're talking about the 90s, there wasn't really like alternative black comedians. There wasn't this sense of like other venues where you could go. So I just sort of ended up in these white spaces. But then I would talk about race and racism, and people would seize up because I wasn't doing it the way they wanted me to. And so I was in Chicago for three years doing comedy. And, but really, by the third year, I was like, I need to move because I think I was spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to please the audience. And really, the only way you're going to become a good comedian is to figure out how to please yourself. To what extent do you think you were really pushing the envelope with the stuff you were doing with white audiences? Then? In Chicago? Yeah. I mean, nothing. I mean, I was I was yeah. I was a baby comedian just trying to figure out what was funny. So if I thought I was pushing the envelope, I would look back now and go, "No, that joke wasn't funny." <laughs> <laughs> There's a thing that happens in comedy when you're like three years in, where you think you're pushing the envelope, and every comedian who's like ten years in is like, "Oh, I remember when I thought I was pushing the envelope." <laughs> like, 
<laughs> there's there's just stages of being a comedian where you can sort of see where there's like the first thing is like it's sort of hope I'm funny and there's a thing where you're like oh wait I'm a little bit funny and then you start to go I'm funny <laughs> and then there's a thing that happens with a lot of comedians where it's like I'm going to use the big words that people tell me not to use and that's when a lot of comics start to use jokes that have the n bomb in them a lot of male comics use jokes that have the c word in uh-huh, them and uh-huh. it starts to be like because you start to feel like I'm an adult and I I'm dangerous I'm the want. George Carlin of my uh, coffee shop that I do this open mic <laughs> And, and you can see it happen, and it's like, Lenny Bruce was arrested for that, so you're not going to get arrested for that, so you're not really pushing it. But it's just a stage of development. It's like a top, like my daughter right now is 19 months, and she's like running everywhere and falling, and it's like, mm. that's just the stage of development. I'm going to totally. tell her, like, stop running. Like, no, no, you run, and you'll <laughs> get running. better. Yeah, yeah, totally. I remember I had a Klan joke when I was in Chicago, but I'd look back and go, ah, you know, so. What yeah. was it? Uh, why would you, why? I knew as soon as I said it, I was like, that was a dumb <laughs> You gave idea. me a really great specific. I would love to hear it, sir. The joke, I feel like if I really had the interest, I could go back and rescue it. But it just never, it was like a joke that worked 25% of the time, but I really enjoyed it and thought that it was the audience. But it was just a joke about how, I think it was Springer. That dude's still working, by the way. He's still making that show. I just (laughs) think we all need to, every now and again, we all need to go, you know, Jerry Springer's still making that show, right? (laughs) Carson Daly show, going into its 15th year, everybody. Wow. 15 years of later with Carson Daly. So... Uh, the joke was about how I'd watch the Springer show and somebody in the audience asked him about, do you call black people the N-word? And he said, no, I don't use that word anymore. It's outdated. I call black people obsolete farm machinery. Ooh. And that's what would happen. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> but there's nearly not a punchline there. It just makes people go, oh, Jesus, oh Lord. God. And I would go, ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling us about it. I was just telling people about a thing that happened. But oh there was not a God. You need to then write a punchline after that that sort of pushes that further or subverts it. But at the time, I was just like, oh, you can't handle the truth? You know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How do you learn as a comedian when your jokes are bombing and when your audience just doesn't get it? I mean, I, like it's funny because I talked. I worked with Chris Rock as he was an executive producer on Totally Bye, so yeah. I'm not just name dropping. Uh, <laughs> I have his it's number. Cool. Yeah, so I, I actually did work with him, and he says it's never the audience's fault. It's always your huh. fault. Interesting. I don't a hundred percent agree with that, but then his career is better than mine, so maybe he's right. Well, I think there's two different types of comedians. There's comedians who want to be like please as many people in the room as possible, mm-hmm. and there's comedians who want to please the right people. Now, Chris would say that means you're a failing comedian. And I would say, no, I'm choosing to live at a different level of comedy. I'm choosing choosing to like, I'm a niche product. Uh, I'm like a friend of mine one time said, he's like, yeah, you're like sushi and you can't bring sushi to the barbecue. Like, I just feel like I'm not for everybody. And I accept that. And that's why I know my career took longer and it's going to be harder and I have to invent new projects. Like, I'm going to go visit the clan. Like, you know, like it's not going to happen for me the same way it happens for everybody, everybody else. So. For what I would say is like you're not allowed to think it's the audience probably for the first ten years. Yeah, like you need to actually get some miles under you before you start blaming the audience. So interesting. Yeah, I think because ultimately, if it's not if it's not working a lot, then it is you. Right, yeah. right. Huh. So how much has your audience changed? You know, you talk about being in Chicago, working yeah. with white rooms. Are they still white rooms now? No, they're just we call them rooms. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, man. Good no one. No problem. No problem. Uh, I just work in places called rooms. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> so it's just a room now. I'm so glad you told me. Thank God. <laughs> but I mean, I know that there are rooms that are white rooms. There are clubs that are like you would say this is a white space and this is a. I try to pick rooms that are outside of like I don't play a lot of comedy clubs anymore because mm-hmm. those spaces tend to be sort of they either are white spaces or black spaces or Latino spaces okay. based on who books them and how and the audience that goes there. But if you just play a place and you sort of like just get the, the place to yourself for a night. People just find the place and go there. Stay
still to come on Nerdette, we get down and nerdy with Kamau Bell about TV shows he loved as a kid, his favorite superhero, and he throws some shade at Greta about her lack of movie knowledge. He really does, which I mean, you know, it's a thing that comes up every once in a while. I myself was surprised at how few Denzel Washington movies I have seen. For shame, Greta. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Nerdette. Our guest this week is W. Kamau Bell, who has a social commentary show on a news network. Well, CNN, so news network adjacent. (laughs) You're throwing shade at CNN. Yes, I am. With a CNN-sized budget, Kamau Bell has gone all over the country from Greta's wayward homeland of Alaska (laughs) all the way down to Florida. Which really does feel like the opposite corner coming from Alaska. I've never been to Florida. Why would you go? And it makes no sense to you, often you say. I think Alaska and Florida have more in common than you would expect. And that's part of what Kamal Bell is doing, is showing that in all the crazy corners of America, when you ask people questions, turns out there's more similarities we have than differences. But turns out he's thrilled when he gets asked about something other than his own show. So what kind of TV did you watch when you were a kid? Oh, man, this is a great question. Right? I love talking about this. Awesome. We should open on this. We're going to cut the rest of this bowl. My favorite shows when I was a kid, I, I had a joke with my special about this. The Dukes of Hazard was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. My, huh. mom, my mom was not happy about that. Uh, <laughs> Why was your mom not happy about that? Because it's, it's every week the General Lee saves the day. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> every week. General Lee to oh, the rescue. Yeah. yeah, history. Uh, uh, let's see. The Incredible Hulk was cool. a TV show when I was a kid because I'm quite old. Knight Rider. Let's see. Oh, uh, the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby Show. Mm, uh, <laughs> you sound conflicted about that. Well, I'm not conflicted about it. I just, you can't say the you can't say the words Bill Cosby without having without mm-hmm. sort of saying a, more about it. I just say the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby, yeah. so you understand that I get that I can't just say. Yeah, his name. I liked the heavy sigh beforehand too. Yeah, so because the Cosby Show was really seminal in my life, like it showed a black family on TV who were not the type of black family you know saw on TV, and not that my family did not have that kind of money. But my family did have, did sort of feel that way. Like we talked about mm-hmm. black stuff and we, you know, there was jazz playing and da da da. So for me, that show was a seminal show for me. Like it helped sort of define who I was. And now to know that I can't really bring it up. And, and also, Bill Cosby was absolutely one of the comedians I saw when I was like, oh, I want to do that. Like right. Bill Cosby himself, I get it. I get it. We can't talk about Bill Cosby as a, as a cultural icon and comedian anymore. But that, that special, Bill Cosby himself, absolutely was like my moon landing like i was like as a kid going oh my god I, he's just talking and he's sitting in a chair and he's destroying the room and so like bill cosby and eddie murphy were two like sort of polar for like they seemed opposite at the time but uh these these uh, these super superhero type forces that really helped define who i wanted to be as a comedian so yeah cosby makes sense to that extent i'm curious what it is about the hulk that appealed to you I was an only child. I uh, <laughs> was filled with anger that I sort of repressed. And so off, I just felt like one day I'm going to be like, <laughs> <laughs> it felt very like, yeah, that's that's me. One day I'm just going to hulk out and <laughs> kill everybody. 
the creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. My mom used to let me, uh, she'd let me cut up, or she cut up some clothes for me so I would watch The Incredible Hulk in like Hulk clothes. Seriously? Absolutely. That's awesome. Yes, there are pictures. No, I don't know where they are. Do you really not know where they are, though? My mom has them. I'm sure she has them. <laughs> she has everything. That's really adorable. We were actually just talking the other day about the miracle that is the fact that Hulk's pants stay on him. That's like one of those, like, like there's scientists have written about that. <laughs> the property of Hulk pants. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. where do you get those pants? Yeah, is well, there they're, just that they're, much spandex in yeah, there? Yeah, they're stretchy. They're stretchy pants. They're just pants. real stretchy? They're real stretchy Active pants. Active flex yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. pants? Is that the deal? The, the funny thing about superheroes, I think, is funny. When superheroes were invented... Nobody was applying logic to any of it. Obviously. So it was just like like I mean Superman is the modern is the first modern era like mm-hmm. real like we're going to make a superhero. There was just the idea of it was like, "Oh my god, that's great. He's got a cape and he can, <laughs> and he's strong and these bullets are bouncing off him. But why aren't the bullets ripping the clothes he's wearing? Like, why don't the bullets rip the, the clothes? They just sort of bounce off of his chest." <laughs> Nobody's thinking about this 1930s. We're just happy. And then you go over time and they like same thing with like Spider-Man, like, Spider-Man, he's got webs and stuff, and, and, he's, and, he's, and this 16-year-old kid sewed a costume at home, even though he'd never sewed anything before, but he made this incredibly detailed <laughs> superhero costume, and for some reason, when he blinks, the eyes blink in the costume, even though it's just the thing he sewed in his house. How does that work? We're just excited that that's a man who's a spider. It's just so exciting. And then now, in the modern era, it sort of ruins it a little bit, like, they, they come up with reasons why. Well, it's Kryptonian fiber. <laughs> When, like, well, uh, Tony Stark actually made Spider-Man a Spider-Man cut. Uh-huh, it becomes this whole uh-huh. thing where they like we sort of like backward engineer this thing that was just about, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> so tell me about the Denzel podcast. What's the deal with that? Well, uh, me and uh, one of my good friends, Kevin Avery, who's a writer for Last Week Tonight. Kevin also was the head writer on Totally Biased. We uh, decided to do a podcast. about started about a year or so ago called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period. And it's about how Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. (laughs) And do you really believe that? I believe that he should be in the conversation with greatest actors of all time, period. And the fact that he's not is hashtag racism. And Denzel is super is way more consistent than any other actor. And because of racism, he doesn't get the same type of roles to pick. He has to sort of go out and find his roles. Whereas like the actors we talk about when we talk about the greatest actors of all time, it's it's not only is it a racist problem, it's also a gender problem. Like Mm -hmm. Meryl Streep is probably the greatest actor of all time, period. But it's always like De Niro, Pacino, Brando, now it's DiCaprio, anybody who names name ends an O, it gets to be on that Damn. discussion. We love Denzel. We we found out through being roommates how much that he's like, I love Crimson Tide. I was like, I love Malcolm X. <laughs> and he'd be playing Crimson Tide in one room and I'd be playing Malcolm X in the other room. And we just were always having these Denzel conversations and eventually we decided to have a podcast about it. And it also... It becomes a podcast about diversity in Hollywood. It's mm-hmm. Like we've had a lot of actors on and directors. We've had Ava DuVernay on, Ryan Coogler. We've had a lot of different actors on the show talking about diversity in Hollywood and their own careers. And it's become a really interesting conversation. That is also about Denzel Washington being the greatest actor of all time. Period. And recently, our newest episode, <laughs> we had Terry Gross on. No Boom. kidding. Yeah. What? Take Seriously? That. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, now it's real. Oh, now it's real. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Now it's sorry. real. Before you're like you're starting to doze <laughs> off. Uh-huh. I know I'd say the magic words. The problem is that I've seen like ten movies in my life. And so what I haven't are you talking seen a about? whole lot of Denzel. What are you talking about? But Why you know, you I, 
I don't know, man. I grew up in Alaska. That's what I blame it on. But I think plenty of my friends in Alaska watched movies. Nope, nope, nope. My dad thought they were a waste of time. We had Yojimbo and we had Mary Poppins. I'm not going to let you blame your dad or Alaska. (laughs) Because as far as I'm guessing, you didn't just move here this morning. Did no. you just get from Alaska this morning? Yeah, you just yeah, got I off came the, in, yep. Yeah, yeah. This, this is your first assignment was talk to me? <laughs> this is my first assignment. You don't get, what do you mean yeah. you want to see 10 movies? I haven't, I, I mean, it's 10 is like a, a slight I, no, I, exaggeration. No, I get that, I'm not, but. Um, but yeah, I just like never really watched that many movies. I'm getting better about it, but yeah. Are, don't you work in media? Else. I do, I, I do, yeah. I sure do. I read a lot of books. <laughs> no, I mean, fine. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, okay, so write these movies down. Okay, good, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So totally. right. Here's five Denzel Washington movies you need to see. Okay. Right, you may, if you've seen one of these, let me know. Okay. Malcolm X. Okay. Crimson Tide. Okay. These aren't even my top five. I'm just trying to give you a swath of movies. Okay, good. Uh, Glory. Uh-huh. Uh, Mo Better Blues. Okay. And uh, A Soldier Story. Wait, so why'd you have Terry on, though? Does she really like Denzel? (laughs) You know, he's a famous person. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't didn't say Steve Buscemi's the greatest actor of all time, period. Right, but I mean, (laughs) I still am just a a little confused about the correlation between Terry Gross and Denzel Washington. To be truthful, we had Terry Gross on because we are going to try to interview Denzel. And Terry Gross has interviewed Denzel Washington. Ah. And so she was like, and so we had her on the show. And I've been on uh, Fresh Air twice. And so, no big oh, deal. Oh, he's laughing at me. <laughs> I can prove it. I can send you the links. I saw the links, man. Okay. I heard it. And we found out her favorite Denzel Washington movie is American Gangster, which nobody would have guessed because it's, it's not it, on this list, man. Write down American Gangster. American Gangster is great. It's just there's a lot of Russell Crowe in it, and so it depends uh, how, you, how you feel about Russell Crowe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you can technically fast forward through the Russell Crowe parts, and it's a very hardcore over-the-top Denzel Washington performance, and it's like where he's like beats people up and shoots people in the face, and Terry Gross is like, that's my favorite Denzel Washington movie. <laughs> that's why the podcast is great, because you get to find out lots of great things about people. We had Spike Lee on the podcast, so it's a, uh, yeah, this is how everything in my career works. It is for the people it is for. And so the people who love the Denzel podcast love it, and the people who don't, then just go listen to something else. You know, and the same thing with the United States of America. It just seems like this is for more people than my things are usually for. W. Kamel Bell, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. That was super fun. Thanks. So you are what you are in this world. That's either one or two things. Either you're somebody or you're nobody. Be right back. As we head inevitably towards the end of the show, we'd like to introduce a new feature we're calling Lost in Google Translation. I feel like we need to point out that technically this is Google Transcription, but the name Lost in Google Translation is just too good. So here's the deal. You know we get a lot of voicemails from you of beautiful nerd confessions. We love them. An extra thing that we love about them is the Google Transcription because it gets all sorts of things wrong. We get these emails sent to our phones with the text transcription, and it's not always very accurate. So let's hear a recent voicemail from someone named Andrew in Tacoma. That much we got from the transcription, but we're not sure we get the rest of it. So we thought what we would do is listen to a dramatic reading of the transcription of this voicemail. One of our intrepid producers is going to help us with that. Colin, take it away. 
Hey, nerdish, this is Andrew in Tacoma, and I'm calling with my how I know doubt the last 1,516 years or so. I've only had two responses to this question. Whenever somebody on the phone for customer service or a waitress, somebody's there and they say there's anything else I could do for you, work order I flat out every single time. I say not unless you can all the time and speed up the harvest or teleport me off this rock. And I wait to see what they say and a thousand... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I wait to see what they say. And a 1,516 years have been doing that to people ever kind of talk with the gist of it. And then they knew what they were saying. I was saying, but they never replied back. Sorry, I'm only hold protocols, droid. That's mine. Everyday nerd I know. It's just so good. Colin, I feel like you are missing your calling here as a podcast as a, producer. Yeah, as a Shakespearean actor. Yeah, that's really strong. It's more like E.E. E. Cummings than Shakespeare, but sure. <laughs> Trisha, what do you think? Well, if there's a notions? droid, if there really is a droid, if yeah. you got that word yeah, right, then true. maybe we're in the realm of sci-fi. Yeah. There could be Star Wars or Star Trek at play. Mm-hmm. What do you think's going on with the waitress? Waitress or customer service. So, yeah, it's like it's I think the nerd confession is like whenever someone asks him that standard, like, is there anything else I can do for you? Then he has like this really weird nerdy response, which is speed up the harvest, which right. sounds very familiar to me. now, And it weirds out everybody. It's kind of like when when someone packs all my groceries and they're like, I did a really good job packing all those groceries in one bag. And I'm like, yeah, it's bigger on the inside. And they're like, oh, Mary Poppins. And I'm like, no, man, Doctor Who. I think it's like that. But I don't know what the reference is. (laughs) I do like that there's a momentum to it. Maybe that was just in the very good dramatic (laughs) reading. But it sounds like they're getting more upset as they go. It really does. So so should we listen? Is it time? Yeah, here we go. Hey, Nerdist. This is Andrew in Tacoma. And I'm calling with my How I Nerd Out. The last 15 or 16 years or so, uh, I've only had two responses to this question. Whenever somebody on the phone from customer service or a waitress, somebody's there and they say, so is there anything else I can do for you? Word for word, I flat out every single time I say, not unless you can alter time and speed up the harvest or teleport me off this rock. And I wait to see what they say. And out of 15, 16 years that I've been doing that, only two people ever kind of caught the the gist of it. They knew what they were saying, I was saying, but they never replied back. Sorry, I'm only a protocol droid. That's my everyday nerd. I know. Did he make the beeping sound? I think he just made his own beeping sound because he wanted to be done talking. That's amazing. I'm going to end all conversations like that now. So I don't actually know this reference. Sounds like he's describing C3PO, something Star Warsy, something Star Warsy, which he has been saying to people for. More than a decade now, and only two people have ever gotten his nerd joke. <laughs> Let's listen to the source material. It just isn't fair. Oh, Biggs is right. I'm never going to get out of here. Is there anything I might do to help? Oh, not unless you can alter time, speed up the harvest, or teleport me off this rock. I don't think so, sir. I'm only a droid and not very knowledgeable about such things. Not on this planet, anyway. Thanks to Andrew from Tacoma and a Google algorithm that is doing its best. And also to producer Colin McNulty, because that reading was just, just stellar. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. Oh, wait. Greta. Oh, yeah. We forgot homework. Ooh, homework. What was Kamau Bell's assignment? I mean, other than like all the Denzel movies that I have to watch. Yeah, a lot of Denzel and this. Hi, I'm W. Kamau Bell, and this is your homework. 
And then a jingle comes in like, homework with Debbie Kamal Bell. There is an incredible article on the website, The Establishment. The Establishment is a website run by women that features mostly the writing of women, although I wrote something for it, and it pays them a good writing wage, so I like to talk about it. And there's an article about Azalea Banks, who was recently banned from Twitter for uh, offensive uh, tweets. And the article asked the question, like, why is it just Azalea Banks who's been banned from Twitter for offensive tweets? Because especially as women who are writers and as a black guy, I had this too. I get lots of offensive tweets all the time. And when I complain to Twitter, they go, no, that's just free speech. So why does Twitter choose to ban a black woman who says offensive things but lets a lot of other offensive talk go? It's a great article. It's a deep dive. It'll make you feel some feelings. You may not agree with it, but you shouldn't be agreeing with everything you read anyway. That's boring. That's really good homework. Thanks, man. Thank you. The show is produced by us, Greta Johnson, and Trisha Bobita with help from Colin McNulty and Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Seabrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening because you already are. We would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, follow us on NPR One, check us out on the new WBEZ app, maybe. Ooh, nice. It's a pretty fancy app. You should try it. You know what else is really wonderful is when people leave us nice reviews on things, whether that is on Stitcher or liking on NPR One or all that good stuff. We would like to thank 282436 for the nice iTunes review. What do you think those numbers stand for? You know, I've been thinking about it a lot, and it's probably a Star Wars reference. I think it's someone's middle school locker combination. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you remember your middle school locker combination? No, but I have stress dreams still about not remembering oh, my school man. locker combination. And that being reminds- like, I can't get my homework out. <laughs> this is a recurring oh, stress dream I have. That's perfect, because it means you've done the homework, but you still can't get it. It's well, of perfect. course I did the homework. That's it. That's awesome. You can find us on Twitter at Nerd at Podcast, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. Wherever you're talking to people online, chat at us. Yes, and we also like to hear from you. Leave us voicemails with your nerd confessions. Give us a call 312-600-5638. Another super cool thing you can do if you're feeling savvy is you can record yourself with your little voice memos app and email it to us at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago where there are podcasts for nerds of all stripes. You should check out Pleasure Town, a show about a fictional hedonistic town in Oklahoma. It is dusty and delightful. And if you like fictional places that people live in, you might even like real life places that people live in, like Chicago, which is where Trisha and I live. There is a beautiful thing called Curious City out of WBEZ that you might want to check out. There are lots of fun questions answered about Chicago, but also just about human nature. Find all those things at wbez.org slash podcast. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Faites-vous vos devoirs. What was that? That's in French. Oh, my God. Beep. Means we're done talking. Beep. Oh. Oh, that's what that was. What's going on? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.